The Bob Murphy Show, episode 207. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i'm going to be doing what may end up being a series, not sure yet, but it's called They Said What? This is the John Lennon edition. And so what this is going to be is I'll go through in things that are famously attributed to people often, if they're notorious statements, I'll go through and tell you. So now you know the rest of the story. That wasn't a full-fledged Paul Harvey impression. Just want to make make it clear. I I didn't really commit to it. All right, so that's what we're going to do. Why don't we start out with John Lennon? And so the easy one, I'll do that first. Then I'll do the one where it turned out as I was just researching it to get my ducks in a row, I realized, wait a minute, maybe I have to debunk the debunker because what I was going to tell you folks turned out to be more nuanced at the very least. But anyway, the one that really works is I've seen right-wing fuddy-duddy types say stuff like, Oh, and in the 60s, you know, the hippies with their free love movement and John Lennon calling for revolution, but we conservatives knew blah, 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 blah. And that is completely unfair, all right? If you go and listen to, so they're referring, of course, to the Beatles song, Revolution. They say you want a revolution. Okay, that one. It's John Lennon, who's the lead singer and wrote the song. He's not calling for revolution. He's literally doing the opposite. In fact, what he's doing is even braver than not calling for revolution. He's calling out the Marxists who are hateful and violent and want to, you know, fix society that way. All right, so just, I encourage you, I'll put links at the show notes page, of course, folks. This is bobmurphyshow.com slash 207. If you don't know the song, go read the lyrics. I mean, it's, the whole thing is awesome. It's, if you want money for people with minds that hate, all I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait, right? So he's saying you're trying to, raise money and no, if you're going to go give it to people who are full of hate, you know, they want to tear down cap. And by the way, Lennon here was not referring to all of his buddies, fans of the Beatles who are sitting around smoking dope and then saying, Hey, John, can you fund this, uh, KKK rally? That's not what the context is here. He means Marxists. Well, I guess technically it might not be Marxists, but Critics of capitalism. That's why they were going to John Lennon asking him for money because they knew, oh, yeah, you should agree with us. You should support this, John. You hate the U.S. government. You don't like imperialism. You don't like capitalism and big corporations and consumerism. So you should be for this. Give us money to these people. And he's saying, no, I'll check them out and they're full of hate. So that's exactly the kind of message that we could use right now. You know, if some really prominent icon, I mean, it, the closest thing I can think of is, um, Eric Clapton coming out against the COVID restrictions. Like, to me, that's how brave it was that John Lennon did this. And so you can imagine if down the road, you know, Matt Walsh or somebody said, and then, you know, Clapton wanting to take away everyone's freedoms because he felt unsafe at home. Like, you know how outrageous that would be if somebody said that? Well, that's 
what you should feel like when you know you see old time conservatives rolling their eyes at John Lennon calling for a revolution. No, he was doing the opposite. Remember the other iconic guy? If you want, wait, wait, uh, if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow, right? So he's literally criticizing people's infatuation and elevation of Mao Zedong. So again, I, why right wingers are gonna hold that up as an example? And, and by the way it was far braver of John Lennon to take those stances than some guy who's like, you know, a Richard Nixon fan. Cause everybody would expect those guys to be anti-communist and anti-Mao. But for John Lennon to come out and say that when the Beatles were humongous, that, you know, he didn't need to stick his neck out like that. So that was amazing. So then to see that turned around and be made into literally the opposite is, well, it just gets me upset. All right. So then the other one that I was going to do Here's what I was originally going to say, and then I'm going to have to tell you, oh, wait a minute. When I went to look it up just to get my T's crossed and I's dotted, I realized, whoa, blew this story wide open. That, oh, before I forget, I'm going to put in the links to the show notes page the cover of Come Together that I did with uh, Music City Friends of Liberty. That's a band that I was a part of out of Nashville, a.k.a. Music City. We were the Friends of Liberty, by the way. Um, and we did a cover, a live, you know, in a bar in front of a crowd uh, of Come Together. And it came out pretty well. I'm not going to lie to you. We killed it. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes page in case you're curious. So anyway, back to the matter at hand. Another one that conservatives get real huffy about John Lennon's statements. So here's what I was originally going to say that I saw a conservative rolling his eyes and say, yeah. And then back in this, you know, this was the period in U.S. culture, in the culture wars, when uh, you had John Lennon going around saying that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ. And I got upset with that because I am pretty sure that I saw actual footage. Like, I, you know, I saw John Lennon on a, at a press conference, I believe. Like, I can remember seeing this. It's not, in other words, not just me reading something printed and then visualizing it and then storing it. No, like I thought that I saw the footage of him actually saying this, the clip, where he's at a press conference and I thought it was something like they were talking about Beatlemania. You know, how when the Beatles were, you know, were at the height of their popularity, like they could just would go to a, sing a song somewhere and like the crowd would just, ah! you couldn't even hear them. And it was just, you know, nobody, no act could follow them. Because it was just people go crazy, like girls are passing out and stuff. By the way, I read about that and apparently the Beatles uh, promoter at that point in their career, I don't know if they kept the guy when he did a good job. In the beginning to get that going, like paid actresses to go out in the crowd and then swoon, whatever. So I'm, I was thinking about doing that when I, with you know, when, when people start hiring economists to go give talks again after dinner and stuff, I might just get some plants in the crowd to come up and ask me to sign up, you know, my books and then pass out because they just can't believe Anyway, so at the height of the popularity, what I thought I saw was John Lennon saying to the press something like, I mean, this is, this is madness. It's like the, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus Christ now, right? And so I thought what he was doing was saying, this is, we're just a rock and roll band. What's, what's wrong with you people? You're acting like we're bigger than Jesus. And in particular, I thought, the way I had filed with the memory was he said, it's like the Beatles are bigger than Jesus Christ. So the bigger and to say the full name, Jesus Christ, not just Jesus. Now, and so I, and I was all set to go ahead and 
come on here and tell you folks that, so see, so don't accuse John Lennon of doing that. Again, that kind of almost makes it the opposite. But then when I went to look that up just to get the exact wording and to know the time he said it and so forth, I can't find the quote that I thought that I saw on TV. Instead, what I find if you go and Google that stuff, like there's a Wikipedia entry just called more popular than Jesus. And also it says bigger than Jesus redirects here is that John Lennon was in, was quoted in a March 1966 interview, right? So this came out in print. Here, I'll just skim from this article. In which he argued that the public were more infatuated with the band than with Jesus and that Christian faith was declining to the extent that it might be outlasted by rock music. Da -da 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 -da. Okay. His comments incited protests and threats, particularly throughout the Bible Belt in the southern United States. Some radio stations stopped playing Beatles songs. The KKK picketed concerts. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. And so then here's the actual quote. So it's still at this point, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, still, they must have just misunderstood the context. But I went, and this is the quote that is in the Wikipedia entry. So this is, you know, the reporter. She, was, she interviewed the Fab Four independently instead of just, you know, having them all together. And this is apparently what he said to her. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. All right, so assuming he did say that, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's something that Christians could understand and get upset about, and they're not putting words in his mouth or taking them out of context. So, but the thing that's, like I said, is weird to me is I thought I had seen the clip before I knew it was controversial. Like I thought I was just watching a documentary on the Beatles or something and they had a bunch of footage of, you know, them saying funny stuff. Oh, the lads having fun with the press. And that was just one of the clips. I mean, he stuff too, like somebody asking the Beatles, is Ringo the best drummer in the world? And then John goes, he's not the best drummer in the Beatles, right? I mean, they were funny. Like you were trying to understand why were they so humongous? And by the way, I was on, if you had the Sirius XM stations, you'll see there's, it's not just that the Beatles are like occasionally in the, the 60s station or there's a, literally a Beatles station, which isn't surprising they'd be there, but in other genres too, like classic rock, whatever. It's, it's not just that they had a ton of hits, but they were like almost different genres or at least there's clearly different phases in their career. So, uh, but beyond that, they're, they're funny. They're like we've seen interviews with them and stuff. So anyway, um, what it occurred to me, what may have happened is maybe he gave that interview to the press, you know, the person, she published it, and then there was the controversy, and then maybe what I saw was at a press conference when they were asking him about this controversial quote that was in the print magazine, and then I saw him, like, trying to do damage control and say, oh, no, 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 I, I was just saying, like, it's crazy that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus right now, so that's possible. But, by the way, but the reason I think what I saw was different, assuming I didn't just invent that memory, is the quote, it was actually in print as him saying we're more popular than Jesus now. Whereas what I had filed away that I thought I saw a video of him saying was it's like we're bigger than Jesus Christ. So, okay. If anybody can resolve that in the show notes page, I would be grateful. But I spent a decent amount of time, by which I mean probably all of four minutes, trying to find the quote that I remember seeing. Okay, how about an economics one? John Maynard Keynes. Oh, those Keynesians are so short-sighted. Do you, do you know that John Maynard Keynes actually wrote down in the long run, we're all dead? 
And he was using that to like defend deficit spending and the right wingers of his day were worried about inflation and budget deficits and interest rates. And Keynes just said, no, no, in the long run, we're all dead. Who cares? Let's live it up. After me, the deluge. Okay, so he did say in the long run, we're all dead. But other than that, the rest of that narrative that is typically attached to that phrase is not correct. That's not the context in which he said that. Um, and by the way, I tried pinning down, like I've seen people that I really like, even Mises have lines to the effect that, you know, hey, Kane says in the long run, we're all dead, but hey, we're in the long run now and blah, blah, blah. Such that I thought maybe Kane said it twice or something, or maybe, you know, in, in reference to once it became popular, he he doubled down on it or something. Because let me just read to you the original context. It's not at all in, you know, talking about the long run consequences of Kane, what we now call Keynesian economics. So it actually came from a tract on monetary reform, which came out in 1923, right? The general theory wasn't until the 30s, 36. And so let me just, actually, it was kind of a pain. I had to figure out to get the full quote here. So the version I'm looking at, it's from pages, it's on 79 and 80. So I'm just going to, so he's talking about the quantity theory of money. So I'm going to give a long quotation just so you can see the full context and then I'll paraphrase what he's saying. So far, there should be no room for difference of opinion. The error often made by careless adherence of the quantity theory, which may partly explain why it's not universally accepted, is as follows. Everyone admits that the habits of the public and the use of money and of banking facilities and the practices of the banks in respect of their reserves change from time to time as the result of obvious developments. These habits and practices are a reflection of changes in economic and social organization. But the theory, and he's got a capital T, so he means the quantity theory of money. He's just using shorthand. Has often been expounded on the further assumption that a mere change in the quantity of the currency cannot affect K, R, and K prime, right? So those are three variables if you were going to write the quantity theory of money out in symbolic form. That is to say, in mathematical parlance, that N is an independent variable in relation to these quantities. It would follow from this that an arbitrary doubling of N, since this in itself is assumed not to affect KR and K prime, must have the effect of raising P to double what it would have been otherwise. The quantity theory is often stated in this or a similar form. All right, so let me just stop right there. So here, again, he's referring to it symbolically. What he's saying is um, if you doubled, like if you think of the equation of exchange, if you know that one, MV equals PQ, if you double M, and velocity stays the same and real output stays the same, well, then P has to double, right? So Keynes is referring to someone who makes a statement like that to say, hey, assuming the velocity of turnover stays the same and, you know, real economic output isn't changed, proportional increases in the quantity of money merely are reflected in proportional increases of, you know, the same amount in the price level. So, you know, nothing real gets affected. And the way you would reach that conclusion is you'd have to hold everything else constant. Because if, if doubling the money supply made people worried about price inflation and so they started spending money more quickly, well, then V would go up. So prices would more than double, right? On the other hand, if you thought there was a big, uh, what's that called? Output gap and massive unemployed resources and you're a Keynesian and you thought doubling the money supply would at least in the beginning boost up aggregate demand to full employment level and only then would prices start jumping once, you know, the labor force got back fully employed, then you would think a doubling of M would lead to an increase, but not a doubling of P because Q would go up too, right? So 
anyway, Keynes is here referring to economists who make the observation that, well, if you increased, if you doubled the money supply, but you held velocity and real output constant, well, then P would double in the long run. And so Keynes is now referring to that sort of analysis. It's back to Keynes. Now, in the long run, in quotation marks, this is probably true. If, after the American Civil War, the American dollar had been stabilized and defined by law at 10% below its present value, it would be safe to assume that NNP would now be just 10% greater than they actually are and that the present values of KR and K prime would be entirely unaffected. But this long run is a misleading guide to current affairs. In the long run, we are all dead. Economists set themselves too easy, too useless a task if in tempestuous seasons, they can only tell us that when the storm is long past, the ocean is flat again. Okay, so you see what he's doing there. He's saying, again, to an economist, he's like, oh, if you double the money supply, eventually when things settle down, basically prices would double. It's not going to have any long run effect on real output. You know, you're not going to permanently boost output or permanently reduce it for that matter by just doubling the money supply. In the long run, all that's really going to show up is that you're going to see, you know, and the, and the public's habits for how they spend money and whatever. Yeah, there might be some short-term fluctuations when the new money gets dumped in. But once things settle down, in the long run, doubling the money supply doesn't affect anything real. It just doubles the price level. And so Keynes is saying of that, well, that's not very helpful, right? You're, you're not guiding the public. There could be crazy things that happen in the immediate aftermath of doubling the money supply. and you're just being useless if all you do is come and say, well, after everything settles down, then here's what's going to happen. Because that's precisely the point. We need to know what's going to happen immediately if we do this perhaps radical policy. So I would say not only is Keynes not saying something completely dumb, most Austrians would say something like that. Mises says stuff like that. Like, you know, the don't ignore the short run non-neutrality of money. And it's a standard view among macroeconomists that money is neutral in the long run, but not in the short run. So it's, you know, and again, I mean, Keynes is being cute by saying in the long run, we're all dead. But his point is, so therefore, let's not worry about the long-term consequences of some policy. Rather, he's saying, let's not merely look at the long-term consequences, especially if they're kind of uninteresting. Let's instead focus on the short-term dynamics. Okay. How about, ooh, Donald Trump said that Nazis were very fine people. Can you believe, I mean, how can anyone support this guy? What more proof do you need? Except, you know what? He didn't say that. And he made it crystal clear that that's not what he was saying. Now, I think a lot of you know that, or or, or at least are prepared to believe that. I'll go, yeah, I, I saw that press line about Trump tons of times. So yeah, I'll take your word for it, Murphy. But I think you need to hear the actual press conference, because even I saw it originally, and then I forgot how bad it was until it came up again. And what was hilarious is what I saw, it was like a, at least a year after, perhaps longer, I can't remember. And it was on some, like, it was maybe CNN. I, I'm not certain that it was CNN, but it was something like that. And there was one guy on there who was defending, in, you know, some guest matter-of-factly said, oh yeah, and how, you know, Trump saying Nazis were very fine people. And this guy pipes up and says, no, no actually, he didn't say that. He was referring to people who were at that um, rally defending, you know, uh, uh, the Civil War statues. That's what he was referring to when he said very fine people on both sides. He meant people showing up to defend Southern heritage. He explicitly did not mean 
you know, the, the actual white supremacist and whatever. And the other uh, person who he was correcting on the panel, she's like, oh, well, that, well, that's a new one. That's a new spin attempt to, you know, explain that away. That's, it's like, no, that wasn't a new one. That's what Trump said at the press conference and the, you know, his defenders immediately when the effort came out to frame it as Trump saying Nazis were very fine, but came out and said, no, no, he was talking about the people who wanted to not tear down like a Robert E. Lee statue. That's what he meant. And so it was just hilarious to me that not only was, was this lady, you know, on this panel repeating a lie about Trump. So I'm saying repeating a lie because I, I don't doubt that she genuinely believed he said that. So she wasn't lying, but she was repeating what a lie, you know, a thing that was a lie that anyone who watched his thing knew that's not what he said. Um, and, and by the way, I'll link to, I think it was a New York Times article that originally like set the tone. It, yeah, I know it was because I remember Krugman casually just, you know, would often refer to how Trump praised Nazis as very fine people. And then sometimes he felt the need to justify that. And he'd link to a New York Times, you know, ostensible news story covering the event when it happened. And it's just, it, you know, sometimes there's stories that are misleading, but this one, it was like almost impressive to see how they danced around and like led you to believe one thing when no, that's not what he said. And then and failing to quote the stuff where he explicitly said. So anyway, my point is, even I, after I knew that that was wrong, forgot about how bad it was. And then when Krugman brought it up again, or, or no, when I saw that thing with the, the girl like saying, oh, this is a new one. Like, so not only did she not know that she's repeating a lie, but she didn't realize that this guy's defense, like, you know, the what was the standard pro-Trump talking point on this issue, this allegation was done from day one. And she just didn't even know what the, what the response was. So it just showed how completely confident and clueless she was in this. It was hilarious. But anyway, when that happened, I went and dug up the, the original footage again, and I had forgotten how bad it was. So just if you, in case you never heard it, listen to this. You're putting what you're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane. I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side, and you had a group on the other, and they came at each other with clubs, and it was vicious, and it was horrible, and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. From both sides, sir, you said there was hatred, there was violence on both sides. Are, are well, I do think there's blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. You look at, you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And, and and if you reported it accurately, you would say. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group. Excuse me. Excuse me. I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down, excuse me, are we going to take down, are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? 
Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue? Because he was a major slave owner. Now, are we going to take down his statue? So you know what? It's fine. You're changing history. You're changing culture. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Now, in the other group also, you had some fine people, but you also had troublemakers, and you see them come with the, with the black outfits and with the helmets and with the baseball bats. You got a, you had a lot of bad you had a lot of bad people in the other group too. Unfairly, sir. I'm sorry. I just didn't understand what you were saying. You were saying the press has treated white nationalists unfairly. No. I just didn't understand what you were saying. No. There were people in that rally, and I looked the night before. If you look, there were people protesting very quietly the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. I'm sure in that group there were some bad ones. The following day, it looked like they had some rough, bad people. Neo-Nazis, uh, white nationalists, whatever you want to call them. But you had a lot of people in that group that were there to innocently protest and very legally protest because, you know, I don't know if you know, they had a permit. The other group didn't have a permit. So I only tell you this. There are two sides to a story. I thought what took place was a horrible moment for our country, a horrible moment. But there are two sides to the country. Does anybody have a final? Okay, what about Obama telling business owners, you didn't build your business? You didn't build that. Eh, this one, it's, I don't think it's as bad as the, uh, the John Maynard Keynes one. Because here, I mean, Obama is trying to say, you're not fully responsible for the success of your business. The politicians helped you somewhat. And so you should be grateful to us. So it's not a complete, it's not completely taken out of context, but when he said you didn't build that, he's not referring to your business. He's referring to the stuff that your business relies on for its success. Okay, so Obama wasn't saying you didn't build your business. He said you didn't build that. So he's kind of implying, sure, maybe you built your business, but your business relied on you know, roads and the education. Da, 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 da. You didn't build that. There, the government was involved, right? So it's not purely private sector. So here, I'll go ahead and play the actual quote. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we had that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Incidentally, I may come back to it. The Nancy Pelosi one about um, we got to pass the bill to see what's in it. It's, it's not unfair to her to say that, like, but it, it gets really complex, like to see like what were the procedural blah, blah, blah. And why was she saying it? It's, um, it's more nuanced than the accusations suggest, but it's not unfair. I'll put it that way. That was my take. And it's, um, I, I don't think it's worth getting into, but I'll just give you that in case you care. I'll, I'll link at the show notes page to explain her on, but I'm not, I don't think it's worth our time for me to walk through it. Hey everybody, let's take a break from the discussion to mention that if you like this show and you want to hear more episodes or a higher frequency of episodes, then please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to see some of the special goodies you have there. If that's not an option for you, then uh, 
just share some of these episodes with people you think might like them. That also helps. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the show. How about this one? <laughs> this is a real geeky one. So Bumbavirk had a famous, I mean, now it's a, it's a booklet. I think originally it was like a long essay called, which, well, the English translation of it is Karl Marx and the Close of His System. And so what it actually is referring to, well, it's when volume three of Das Kapital comes out and it was published by Engels relying on, so Marx was dead at this point and Engels relied on notes that Marx had left to then posthumously publish volume three. And so what happened was in the original volume one, Marx on the one hand explained the exchange value of goods in the marketplace, you know, under capitalism as being directly proportional to how much social labor power was in the goods, right? It's a labor theory of value. But on the other hand, to explain like where interest or what I believe Marx called it profit, but you know, we would now call it interest on invested capital, you know, so from the point of view of, oh, do you get monetary revenues in excess of your monetary expenditures? Well, then you can understand why there'd be an accounting profit, but it's not economic profit the way in the way, what happened was in the 20th century that the theory of economics and the, the distinctions of income flows or types of income got sharpened. And so um, the old classical view of, oh, wages go to labor, rent goes to land or natural resources, and profit goes to capitalists, like that got re refined, like with the work of Frank Fetter and stuff. Like, so anyway, and Irving Fisher. Um, that's why I'm saying nowadays what, what Marx was trying to explain, we would probably refer to as interest. But I think if you go read him, he called it profit. But in any event, how is it that the capitalist can invest money in an operation and then end up with more dollars or pounds or whatever at the end of it? You know, how does that happen? Well, you understand how a worker gets money because he engages in hard toil and that's not fun. And he, he, his labor is physically productive. But the capitalist just injecting money into an operation that what you know he, that's not productive physically. Capitalist isn't working. So what, what is he contributing? So Marx's theory was one of exploitation. That what happens is the capitalist hires the worker to make some products, and when the capitalist who now has legal ownership of the resulting product gets to sell it, it exchanges its true full market value, which is ultimately due to the congealed labor power residing in it, as it were. But when the workers themselves were hired to put their labor into the, you know, ongoing production process, as these semi-finished goods moved down the pipeline towards their final destination, um, the capitalist weren't paying, wasn't paying wages equal to the full value of the product. He was paying the workers less than what they were actually contributing because he was paying them a subsistence wage, right? The workers have no bargaining power, and so, yeah, the capitalist has to pay them enough so they don't starve to death because otherwise you got no workers coming back the next day if they're dead. But you don't need to pay them the actual market value of what their labor is producing in the Marxian framework or Marxist framework, right? So um, that gap, Marx argued, is the source of the capitalist surplus value. That's how the capitalist can sit back and contribute nothing and yet reap an income is a, is a, is a parasite class, right? But the problem was, and to his credit, Marx acknowledged that this was a problem. If that were the explanation, 
then you would think the rate of return in labor-intensive industries would be higher than the rate of return in capital-intensive industries. And, right, be, because just to be clear, if you're a capitalist and you, you sell like um, some r- lumber to a home builder, the home builder doesn't get to rip you off as a capitalist, right? You, you get to ch- charge the full price of, you know, the labor that's congealed in that lumber, Right, so you ripped off the worker, the loggers and stuff who went and chopped the trees down. Like they were ripped off because they were the laborers. But now you, as the owner of these of this lumber, you've got bargaining power. You're sitting at the table too, and so you get to charge the full value. So when it comes to where does the exploitation come in and where's the surplus value come in in Marx's framework, one industry that was real labor intensive, more of what the capitalists advance up front to get the stuff that then they turn around and sell to the ultimate consumers, more of that expenditure is hiring labor. And so if that's the source of the surplus because of that mismatch or that gap, then the rate of return on that investment measure, you know, is like how many dollars of surplus do we reap for per $1,000 of invested capital, the rate of return should be higher as opposed to some other industry that's very capital intensive. And yet, in practice, you don't see that. There's a tendency, again, adjusting for risk, for rates of return on invested capital to be equalized across industries. It's not that capitalists make more money investing in hair salons than in offshore oil rigs, even though the hair salon is much more dependent on wages or, or wages are a higher fraction of the out-of-pocket expenses for running the hair salon than they are for running an offshore oil rig. And yet, like I say, it's so according to Marx, you would think the hair salon would have a much higher rate of return than the oil rig does. And yet empirically, that's not what we see. So Marx, again, to his credit, acknowledged and said, oh, it looks like superficially, how can my theory be reconciled with plain facts? But it will be, I promise you. It's only an apparent contradiction. And then Marx died before he ever actually published the solution. But then Engels claimed when he released volume three that I contained, you know, I relied on Marx's notes and he solved the problem of surplus value. And so Bambavrik then responded and saying, no, he didn't. And in my opinion, just eviscerated the poor man. Um, and so, but the, the English title of that work where Bambavrik comes and shows, no, Marx didn't solve this problem. It's still a huge gaping problem. There's a basic paradox at the heart of Marxism, um, you know, beyond its reliance on the labor theory of value and whatnot. So even though it's a very definitive critique, apparently Bambavrik did not mean like, oh, I'm now Eugen nailing the last nail in the coffin of Karl Marx and thus closing his system. No, he meant, ah, now with the conclusion of the Marxist system, let's go ahead and look at this thing, right? So Karl Marx and the completion of his trilogy or something, right? The completion of his system. That's apparently what is a more accurate rendering of what the German title was. Again, not as many people are familiar with that one as they are with John Lennon. Okay, and then let's see, one more fun one, and we'll wrap it up. Dan Quayle. So he was the vice president under George H.W. Bush. Dan Quayle still gaining approval. Not gone bad. That was my uh, impression of Dana Carvey doing an impression of that President Bush. So Dan Quayle infamously... So he had, in case you're too young to know, he had this reputation of being an airhead, all right? And he um, 
he was at a spelling bee. It's sort of like how they treated Sarah Palin years later. That's Dan Quayle was the Sarah Palin of his generation. And so um, he was at a spelling bee, you know, like some photo op thing. Well, the vice president's there at a spelling bee at so-and-so's elementary school. And the word was potato. And so Dan Quayle's holding the cue card, you know, that the teacher writes the words, you know, the, the actual correct spelling on index cards or something. And then that's how you, you know, you're holding the card and the kid can't see it, the, con, the, the contestant or whatever. And you say, oh, spell this word. And the kid spells it, and then you tell him what's right or not. So what happened is Dan Quayle said to the kid, how you spell potato? And the kid says P-O-T-A-T-O. And then Quayle encouraged the kid, oh, you want, you want to add an E at the end of that. And the kid didn't want to do it. And ha-ha, the vice president not only doesn't know how to spell potato, but some kid schools him. And, you know, the press had a field day with him when they were interviewing the kid. And he was like, yeah, I, I knew it wasn't right. And I know he's the vice president, but ha-ha-ha. Okay. So the thing that's funny is apparently, and I don't know if Dan Quayle just lied about this afterward. And they decided this is the best way to do damage control. But I, I never saw anyone alleging that he made this up, this aspect of the story, is it was the teacher who had written out potato with an E at the end on the cue card that then she hand, well, I don't know if it was a she, it could have been a guy. I think it was a she. Handed to Quayle, you know, when he's the vice president swoops in with a security detail and whatever. And okay, yeah, here's the cue card. It's not like Dan Quayle himself wrote up those index cards. It was just handed to him by the teacher. And then he goes up in front of the cameras for a photo op. And, and, and he says in his memoirs that, yeah, he felt uncomfortable when he saw that, like it didn't look right to him, but he assumed, you know, he, he didn't want to look like an idiot and quote, correct the teacher because imagine if he was wrong, right? And by the way, of course, what's driving this, like why the teacher's not a complete more, why she, if it is a she, got it wrong is because with the plural, there isn't any, right? Potatoes, plural, it's OES at the end. So we see it written like that all the time. So it's not that ludicrous that somebody could mistakenly think, oh, the singular, you just take the S off, right? That's not, I mean, you should know it's misspelled, but it's not as bad as just throwing an E on some other word to make it, well, even if it's singular, right? So that's, that's what happened. And again, you can see how Dan Quayle would be reluctant to correct the T because imagine how bad that would be if he was wrong. And, you know, said, oh, this isn't correct. And then like, oh, Dan Quayle tries to correct teacher in the midst of a spelling but B, you know, like what a moron. All right, I will stop there. Perhaps at some other point in the future, I will come back with another episode of They Said What? You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.